Uh, all right, let me, let me try to jump in very quickly in this. What I want to talk about is the notion of the, of the right of conscience as it functions uh, certainly in the political arena these days. There are a large number of healthcare professionals, most especially those who are concerned with abortion and end-of-life decisions. They want to be exempt from what we would consider their standard professional responsibilities, and they want to be excused without any prerequisites and without any conditions. That is, they do not want to have to explain their view, they do not want to have to justify their view, and they don't want to have to suffer any undesirable consequences of having taken the view. And they want to do it simply because they find the view morally objectionable, somehow violating their conscience. Now this is in stark contrast with the longest standing notion of something like a right to conscience, uh, that is of conscientious objectors to war. Uh, for those of you who don't know, at least in the United States, I think the same thing is true in Britain. I'm not as sure about elsewhere in Europe. If you want to be registered as a conscientious objector, when at least in the days when we had selective service, you had to check in your form that you were a conscientious objector. Then you were asked to provide a written justification of why you wanted to be excused. You had to, had to provide a series of letters of recommendation. Those letters of recommendation had to verify that this was in fact your view and had to say that you lived your life in a way that was consonant with what you were claiming in your letters. And you had to do alternative service. If you were going to be drafted, standardly, you would serve two years in the military. If you did alternative service, you had to serve two years in some kind of capacity, for example, as an orderly in the emergency room. And uh, there, you know, it's not a job that a lot of people would want. Moreover, you did not get any veterans benefits, which you would have had had you served in the military. So not only do you serve an equal amount of time, you actually lose some benefits. Now, all this changed in the United States anyway after Roe v. Wade. Uh, and in fact, I believe uh, uh, somebody mentioned this uh, yesterday. The church amendment was passed uh, actually by a Democrat, a, a, a liberal Democrat, which would exempt doctors and nurses from having to to perform abortions if they conscientiously opposed. And I think this was really the first time we'd seen the notion of an absolute right to use Marx's language that you simply had to say, I'm opposed, you were exempt, end of story. Uh, and it really was the first ripple in a legal tsunami. Since then, there are now 19 countries that have some kind of conscience clauses there have been additional amendments in the United States. There have been regulations by the Department of Human and, uh, Services which provide additional protections, at least for doctors and nurses and some other legal professionals. Okay. Now, it seems to me what escapes the attention, though, of the people who make this sort of claim, they're wanting to say, just because I'm conscientiously opposed, I shouldn't have to do it. Somehow, they seem they want to be exempt with the, uh, impunity, and they don't seem to have the ability to imagine that there are other people out there, indeed a lot of other people out there with very different views than their own, who will have acts that they don't want to do. For example, uh, a Hindu waitress in a steakhouse. I don't want to serve steak uh, to my patrons. 
uh, a uh, Christian science dentist who says, I'm not going to give you any antibiotics for that uh, infection in your mouth. All you have to do is pray. Or a shaker pharmacist who says to the man, I want a Viagra prescription. Nah, you're not going to get it because sex really isn't a good thing to have and I'm not going to participate in any way uh, in, in giving you a Viagra prescription. Nonetheless, it seems to me that what those people who are arguing for a right of conscience do is they express a hope that most of us have. And the hope is this, we don't want to be required to act in ways that we deem immoral. We don't want to have to pay for being moral. But the fact is, although we might want this, it really is a fantasy. In our world, in any world that we might live in, morality sometimes costs. Sometimes there are demands it makes upon us. It's just a fact of life and it's a fact of work. Now, how do we get mired in the following circumstance where you have one people, one group of people saying we need to have this right to conscience, another group of people saying what Julian at least wanted to say and maybe still should have said, do it or else quit. Okay. And it seems to me the problem is that advocates tend to conflate or blur a series of questions about the nature of conscience and its proper role in determining individual behavior, as well as how that affects what others should expect them to do or exempt them from not doing. As it turns out, I think critics often make the same mistake, although for a slightly different reason, by failing to recognize that sometimes at least a morally serious agent should, in fact, refuse to do what they're expected to do. And so the debate mostly ranges, uh, rages on unproductively. Now, the conflation I've got in mind is this. I'm going to imagine a fictional professional, and we're going to call her Beverly, and she thinks that there's something that she should not do, some X, where X is something normally required of someone in her role. Okay. Now, here are the three issues. One is that all things considered, Beverly, in fact, should not do X. Secondly, Beverly sincerely thinks that all things considered, she should not do X. And three, Beverly has a right to be exempt from doing X. Seems to me these are three important distinctions often get missed. What neither side seems to acknowledge is that it may be in some cases that Beverly ought not to do X and that we have no obligation to exempt her from not doing X. That possibility seems to escape people in the middle of, of this discussion. Why? Well, at least in part because the professionals who want to proclaim the exemption can't really imagine why anyone would want to do X, and the critics often cannot imagine why any thinking person wouldn't do X. Now, I want to clarify the issues a little bit. I'm going to have to run through this uh, fairly quickly. What about the first claim? The first claim is, all things considered, Beverly shouldn't do X. It might seem as if that were true, then Beverly shouldn't do X, but not quite. Why? Because what matters is not just the truth of the fact that she didn't, shouldn't do X, but whether she has reasons for thinking that she shouldn't do X. It may be that she just got it right luckily, 
And the reason we ought to respect her is if she has reasons for thinking that she shouldn't do X. Okay. Now, so I want to shift uh, the attention to the claim about sincerity, and although there are various distinctions here, I want to mainly focus on the following, that <coughs> even if Beverly has a sincere belief that she shouldn't do X, it's unclear what the basis of the sincere belief is. Maybe she's been brainwashed to have the sincere belief, and the same thing that brainwashed her to have the belief brainwashed her into believing it sincerely. Maybe she simply has unquestioned parental instruction. Whatever her parents told her to do or a preacher told her to do, she simply accepts it. Maybe it's based entirely on misinformation. Maybe it's based on bare intuition, which is non-critical. Or maybe it's based on careful deliberation. The fact is it seems to be not all conscience is created equal, not even all sincere conscience. Now, the third claim that we, she has a right to be exempt is also going to be ambiguous between the notion of an absolute right. I simply have to say I don't want to do it and I'm exempt with impunity and the idea of a conditional right. And the idea of a conditional right is that there are some sort of criteria before or after that have to be satisfied in order for me to have the right. Driving a car. Not just anyone can drive a car. You have to be a certain age, you have to pass a written test, you have to pass a driving test, there are certain things that you have to achieve in order to do it, and there are certain things you have to continue to do in order to continue to be able to drive. For example, I'm about at the place where I am legally blind even with my glasses, so if I do not get cataract surgery this coming summer, I'm not going to be able to drive. Right? So I could lose the right because a right is conditional on certain facts before the case and afterwards. Same things are going to be true with being a nurse. Uh, not just anyone can be a nurse. I've got to get the appropriate degree. I have to get the appropriate certification. And I have to make sure that I don't engage in any actions <coughs> that make me lose my license as a nurse. Same thing true of practicing law. Now, with these things in mind, I want to pose two basic questions. One is, should Beverly in fact refuse to do X, and does she have a right to be exempt from doing X? As it turns out, of course, the, and as it might uh, be suggested by what I've said before, these will not automatically or always be answered in exactly the same way. Now, what I want to do is follow, first of all, focus on the question about Beverly. In fact, I probably want to say more about what Beverly should do than the rest of us should do, just given time constraints. Should she follow her conscience? Now, a lot of people think this is really an idiotic question. Uh, well, what do you mean, should a person follow their conscience? Of course they ought to follow their conscience. But it seems to me it's a silly question only if it's a loaded question. It means perhaps something like this. If I sincerely and reasonably believe that I ought not to do X, and in fact, all things considered, I ought not to do X, should I refrain from doing X? Yeah, okay, maybe that is a trick question. Uh, I shouldn't do it. But that isn't the real question that's going to face professionals. And I think that's part of uh, Professor Gannett's point. Uh, I want to suggest that more often than not, Beverly shouldn't refuse. Forgetting whether we ought to exempt her, Beverly herself should not refuse. Now, having said that, that does not mean that, that there aren't occasions on which a professional should refuse. 
Uh, one of the examples given before is the idea of the Nazi doctors who were asked to do experiments uh, on Jewish patients, but also in the case of the United States. Some of you may know about the case of the Tuskegee syphilitic study where doctors uh, essentially used African-American, rural African-American men to study the effects, long-term effects of syphilis. And I wish doctors had had the courage to say no. Although had they said no, they certainly wouldn't have been exempt with impunity. Now, I think there are four reasons why Beverly ought though to be cautious in refusing, or to put differently, reasons why she should be consider that she should, in fact, uh, do the act, even if she thinks she conscientiously is opposed to it. One is the degree to whether, uh, whether and the degree to which the refusal harms other people, and especially in the case of a profession. And I'm going to just mention these four, and then I'll go back and elaborate slightly on them. Third is the difference between personal and raw morality, and last, Given everyone's propensity for <coughs> error and biases, Beverly ought to be very careful before she refuses to do what she has a fiduciary duty to do. All right. Effects on others. Uh, pretty obvious in this case why at least that raises an important set of moral considerations. Morality is not just about maintaining one's own personal purity. It has to do, importantly, with the effects of one's actions on other people, again, especially in cases where one has a fiduciary duty. Now, uh, we, we want to understand, though, that when we talk about what people can and can't do, that we do allow certain sorts of situations where people might choose to, to engage in behavior that we would not find especially laudatory. Uh, well, consider Duke who is the local grand wizard of the KKK. He's really good at making pancakes. And uh, every few days, he has all his friends over for a pancake breakfast. Is he committed to inviting his African-American neighbor to the breakfast? No. Acting as a private, private citizen on his own, he doesn't have to serve the African-American. He can just provide the service for his friends. But if it turns out that all his friends keep praising him for his pancake-making prowess, he decides to open a local franchise of the International House of Pancakes. At that point, he's given up his right to be picky. Now, it seems to me, if someone comes to his door wanting pancakes, he has to provide it, even if he doesn't like the color of their skin uh, or their cut of their jib. Uh, now, why? Well, in part because, I mean, maybe there's another pancake house next door that the African-American could go to, but the fact is if he's refused service or she's refused service, it is a sign of disrespect to that individual. Now, it turns out Duke, of course, thinks it's a lack of respect to him that he has to serve such people, but it seems to me that this is simply the wrong perspective. And in part, it is reflective of the history under which Duke has lived. Duke has lived at a time where he could serve white males or white females and could exclude blacks, and all of a sudden he's told, no, you can't do that anymore. Then he's going to feel put upon. But that, it seems to me, is Duke prob Duke's problem, not ours. Now, especially it seems to me that when someone is a professional, 
Look, why do we have professions? We, the state established, the government established professions to serve the public's certain vital needs of the public. Tasks that we assume that the average individual citizen cannot do on their own. Uh, and to that extent, the people who are served, the patients, for example, are especially vulnerable to the person <coughs> who has served them, and therefore there is a particular kind of fiduciary duty that might not uh, uh, appear in other cases. Okay. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that you always have to do what your patients ask, for example, if you're a doctor. Uh, suppose I decide, you know, I don't really like the way I look, I'm not very cool. I think it would really be cool if I just lopped off my leg and had an artificial leg. And I go to my doctor and say, look, just take off my leg, I want to look cool. It seems to me the doctor has every right to say, no, sorry, that's, that really is not in your interest. <coughs> but barring unusual circumstances, the assumption, I think, should be that professions, uh, professionals should follow the norms of their profession. That's at least the best they can have in general. <coughs> now, secondly is the notion of individual versus role morality, and we could talk about whether or which cases this might apply, but it does seem to me it does apply in any number of cases. That, that certain kinds of jobs only work if individuals working within those jobs fulfill the roles defined by those jobs, even if they find them objectionable. Um, and, and there was an issue here about lawyers. I mean, suppose you are a district attorney, assistant district attorney, and the district attorney comes to you and says, you need to prosecute uh, Jeff McMahon because he, uh, he, he's a very shady character. And I have to think that he's not a shady character at all, and I don't want to do so, but nonetheless, in my capacity as an, as an assistant district attorney, I have two choices. One is I can prosecute him, or second is I can go find another job. Um, journalists sometimes have to report <coughs> on stories that hurt their friends. They don't want to do that. <coughs> but they are not going to be effective journalists if they're not willing to do that. Okay. And of course, there's the issue of the propensity for error. That it seems to me Beverly ought to be asking herself, and again, I think this is a question that you were asking earlier, sincerity does not guarantee either truth or reasonableness. And I, I mean, I mentioned this yesterday in the other talk, when I think of myself, I sincerely and conscientiously believed that blacks ought to be relegated to the back of the bus. That they should not be drinking at the same water fountains as me. I mean, after all, they clearly were not as good as I was. Uh, they should not be able to use the same bathrooms that I did. I sincerely believed it, I conscientiously believed it, and I was wrong, and at least knowing the propensity for being wrong, I ought to be careful that there are gonna be other cases in the future where I may be wrong. Um, now, uh, still doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask, uh, act on our best belief. What it does mean, though, is that we need to be intellectually and morally humble and cautious before we decide not to do something that we're asked to do in our professional roles. Now, having said that, again, I want to keep emphasizing the fact, still though, there are times where we should reuse. 
And I'll, I'll give you not only the, the historical cases I mentioned, let me give you, well, one of two examples myself. Uh, I was a journalist before I became a professor. And one of the things that I was asked to do on several occasions was to go, uh, in fact, the very first time it happened, there had been a tornado that overturned a boat in the local lake. And I was asked to go cover the story. And part of what it meant to cover the story was to go talk to the two people that managed to swim off the boat to the shore. Well, you know, what was, what was it like to be in the boat when it was uh, hit by the tornado? And, and can you tell me how you feel? I did it, and it was the first time I had the stringer uh, in the newspaper. Right? It's the sense in which it was, it was uh, rewarding to have done it. But I found myself thinking, oh, crap. I don't want to be the sort of person that exploits individuals by asking them these sorts of questions. I did it one more time. And then I finally said, absolutely not. I will not do it again. If you ask me to do it again, I'm leaving. Now, what I want to note, though, is although I don't think, I, I think I was right in refusing to do it, <coughs> I realized my views were unusual. They were different. And so the burden fell on me to explain why I wouldn't do it. I couldn't just say, I, I'm conscientiously opposed. And moreover, it never occurred to me that I could do it, I could refuse with impunity. I knew good and well I could lose my job. And indeed, I thought I was going to lose my job. When I told the city editor what I was going to do, he said, been nice work. Uh, so, yeah, sometimes you should refuse, but you shouldn't be able to refuse with impunity. Okay. Now, should we exempt them? Uh, basically, the sort of arguments I have for why Beverly ought to think about whether she should be exempted are also going to be reasons why we should be a little leery of exempting her with a couple of additional considerations. Uh, <coughs> One, this whole notion of being able to explain your view, part of what's going on here is you want to see if the person is genuinely conscientious and sincere, but part of it is that it shows a kind of mutual respect. I mean, if I don't want to do the act and I want to be exempt, then by golly, I owe you the respect to explain to you why I don't want to do it. Also, it shows that I'm self-critical, and I also think I need to be willing to compensate either my employer or the patients or co-workers for the inconvenience or harm that I put upon them. Uh, now, what I want to do is shift. And what I've tried to suggest is that Beverly, in fact, ought to do X in most cases. Maybe not every case, but most cases, even if she thinks she's conscientiously opposed. And I've tried to suggest that we shouldn't exempt her. Let's suppose both arguments fail. It still seems to me there are a set of public policy considerations that might lead us in the same direction. Uh, here's why. One is the idea, I think, of an absolute right, as it now stands, is completely untenable. <coughs> I mean, right now, the absolute right to refuse primarily rests in the hands of two groups of people, uh, those having to do with abortion or birth control, having to do with women's reproduction and assisted suicide. I see no principled reason 
why it ought to be restricted to just those areas of healthcare. That, I mean, it may be that it comes up there more commonly, but there's no principal reason for saying those are the only areas of healthcare where these considerations might come into play. And indeed, it seems to me there's no reason to restrict these claims just to issues of healthcare. It ought to be uh, also applicable to any profession. And I think there's at least a case to be saying it ought to go for non-professionals as well. If, if there's going to be an absolute right, uh, it ought to be non-professional. Suppose you happen to be a construction worker, you think that nuclear power is dangerous and you're working for a construction company and your boss comes and says to you, uh, I want you to help me build this nuclear power plant. And you say, I, I don't want to do it. It seems to me the claim of that individual is at least similar, morally similar to the case, uh, the cases in medical care. Now, the result, it seems to me, of the idea of an absolute right to be exempt with impunity just is morally indefensible and quite frankly, it's unimplementable. I mean, really could we function if everybody could refuse to do anything they didn't want to do without having to justify it, without having to make any compensation? I happen to not be a fan of uh, the amount of money we spend on defense in the United States. So can I withhold my taxes with impunity and keep them? No. Uh, I may be a right-winger, and I don't want uh, any money from the government going for public education. Does that mean I ought to be exempt from <coughs> contributing to public education? I don't think so. If we tried to generalize it, it wouldn't be uh, doable. Now, what about the idea of a compromise right? The idea of a compromise right, Mark has been a, an advocate of this, as has Dan Brock. The idea of a compromise right usually, uh, first of all, I should say, the idea of a compromise right isn't made by the individuals who claim the rights. It's more made by philosophers who try to defend them. Um, and usually the idea of a compromise involves three things. One is that you at least have to, be, to inform the patient that there are options available to them. You have to refer them to someone who will provide the abortion or provide the services or give you the, the prescription. There has to be some kind of scrutiny to make sure they're not just making this up. Uh, and if it turns out in some unusual case, you simply cannot get the service any other way, the doctor may just have to be forced to do it even against their objections. Now, as it turns out, of course, the vast majority of people who make these claims of conscience simply will not willingly accept the compromise. <coughs> they will not be satisfied with it. So the results will be some number of them are going to be turned down, right? If you did have a procedure that tried to, to ensure their sincerity, some number of them are going to be turned down and they're going to be complaining in the same way they are now, that they're being asked to do something that they find morally objectionable. Or the other option is to have a sort of faux scrutiny. All right, we're not really going to test you. You just come in and, and sit down for 30 seconds and say, I'm conscientiously opposed and leave, which seems to me to have the problems that I've mentioned before. Now, what I want to suggest is, uh, and this is the last point, maybe, maybe the way to approach this uh, issue is to stop thinking about a right to conscience. Maybe that's where we've gotten off the rails. Maybe if we thought instead about the notion of accommodation without rights, uh, 
we might find some common ground. And the idea is this, look, the individual who says, I don't want to do it because it opposes my conscience, does not assert a right to be exempt with impunity. Rather, what he does is he says, look, I want to ask for a moral favor. You're asking me to do something that I find objectionable. Here are the reasons I find that objectionable. Could you find a way to accommodate me so that I don't have to do it? Now, it seems to me if these were the circumstances, individuals would be far less likely to ask for an accommodation than they are now to demand a right. Moreover, we might actually be willing to grant people this sort of accommodation as long as it does not establish a legal precedent requiring other people to grant a similar accommodation.